Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to be together. It's good to see all of you. Uh, If you are watching online, we miss you. We love you. Uh, And we have folks in our two other rooms, all distant. uh, So we love you and say hi. Um, This morning, we're going to be talking about old and new things. Uh, Growing up, my family had this set of kitchen knives, and uh, they, they, we had them, I think, my whole childhood. And we used these knives for everything. Uh, they, but they weren't really designed or efficient at cutting delicate things like tomatoes. They more crushed or hacked through them. Uh, but they did serve their purpose for watermelon or big pieces of meat that didn't need to look pretty. Um, in all fairness, though, they, it wasn't really their fault that they were dull or were ineffective. Uh, what the problem wasn't really with the knives. Um, we could have sharpened them. Uh, we could have uh, learned how to sharpen them and do that. Uh, but we either didn't realize how dull they were or didn't care to learn. Um, But their ineffectiveness really came to light when uh, Sam and I went home to visit and my mom asked Sam to uh, slice a dozen tomatoes for a family gathering. There was tomato juice everywhere. It was, it was a massacre. It was really bad. Uh, and my parents, somewhat embarrassed uh, and trying to reassure Sam that this was not some new son-in-law hazing, uh, were embarrassed that these knives were so dull and suddenly realized they were just not cutting it. Uh, so that following Christmas... <laughs> Oh, yes, pun intended. Um, So that Christmas, we got them a set of restaurant-grade knives, and they were glorious. They could slice the hair off a raspberry. Uh, They were amazing. And so my dad spent the rest of Christmas Day uh, slicing anything sliceable in the fridge, uh, each time going, they're so sharp! Look at this, that's amazing! Like the whole afternoon, just all these massacred fruit uh, in our kitchen. Uh, but they, they were good. The old knives were good, but the new ones, when the new came, we couldn't unsee our failure to use them properly. And the new was unquestionably and inherently better. And that's what we're going to be talking about in 2 Corinthians 3 today. Um, Paul is going to be showing the Corinthians that though glorious, the, old, the new covenant uh, was so much better than the old covenant. And though glorious, the old covenant didn't actually change people to love God. Uh, and he illustrates how the new covenant is unquestionably and inherently better. So we're going to read through 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8. I think I can get this to work. Oh, on. Okay, 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 8. It says, Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glory, glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? 
Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate or reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Um, I, I, we're, that's the passage we're going to be in if you want to turn there. I also uh, really like how the message um, translates that. So I'm just going to read it for us together, and so you can either close your eyes or just listen um, and kind of pick up on some of the different phrases the message uses versus the NIV. It says, The government of death, its constitution chiseled out on stone tablets, had a dazzling inaugural. Moses' face as he delivered the tablets was so bright that day, even though it would fade away soon enough, that the people of Israel could no more look right at him than stare into the sun. How much more dazzling than the government of living spirit? If the government of condemnation was impressive, how about this government of affirmation? Bright as that old government was, it would look downright dull alongside this new one. If that makeshift arrangement impressed us, how much more this brightly shining government installed for eternity? With that kind of hope to excite us, nothing holds us back. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide. Am I on? How are we doing, Kevin? There we go. With that kind of hope to excite us, nothing holds us back. Unlike Moses, we have nothing to hide. Everything is out in the open with us. He wore a veil so the children of Israel wouldn't notice that the glory was fading away, and they didn't notice. They didn't notice it then, and they don't notice it now. They don't notice that there's nothing left behind the veil. Even today, when the, when the proclamations of that old bankrupt government are read out, they can't see through it. Only Christ can get rid of the veil so that they can see for themselves there's nothing there. Uh, Whenever, though, they turn to face God as Moses did, God removes the veil, and there they are, face to face. They suddenly recognize that God is a living, personal presence, not a piece of chiseled stone. And when God is personally present, a living spirit, that old constricting legislation is recognized as absolute. We're free of it, all of us, nothing between us and God, our faces shining with the brightness of his face. And so we are transfigured much like the Messiah, our lives gradually becoming brighter and more beautiful as God enters our lives and we become like him. really like some of those turns of phrases that they use. So what is Paul talking about here uh, in this passage? I think what Paul is trying to communicate is that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant and gives us hope because through it, the spirit transforms us into the image of God. Uh, You may have seen uh, throughout this passage, there are a couple words repeated over and over. Uh, So we're going to get into those. But in your Bible, I may break this passage into two paragraphs because I think it's two different thoughts building on each other. So in the first paragraph, in verses 7 through 11, it talks about how the old covenant was glorious, but the new covenant is so much more glorious. 
And then he builds on that by saying, the new covenant gives us hope because through it, the spirit transforms us into the image of God. So let's dive into the first, uh, the first paragraph here, verses 7 through 11. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? So you can see here there are a couple words repeated over and over. We have ministry repeated over and over and glory or glorious repeated over and over. Uh, and then in the second uh, paragraph, he also repeats covenant over and over. I um, mean, I think covenant and ministry are actually the same thing. He's using those interchangeably. But when we read the Bible, I think there are two different types of words or categories of words we often encounter. Uh, there's a, a type or category of word uh, that is used in the Bible, but has also been adopted or made its way into our cultural vocabulary. And we use that, kind, that word on a daily basis, but it may or may not mean the same thing uh, that the Bible means when the Bible uses that word. So same word, but maybe different meanings or connotations. And then there's a different category or type of word that uh, really only uh, exists in the context of the Bible or Christian living and hasn't really made its way into our cultural vocabulary or day-to-day -day life, uh, the way we speak about life. But they're good words. They're just not words uh, that we, greater culture as a whole or um, even Christian culture uses on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think glory and ministry or covenant falls into those two categories. So, uh, for example, glory. Uh, glory, we use that word in our day-to-day -day lives, or glorious. We say things are glorious, or the sunset was glorious, or an experience was glorious. Uh, and we use that word uh, about other things, but often the things we use to describe as glorious um, don't actually have anything to do with God. And that's a very different connotation than what the Bible says glory or something that's glorious is. Um, then we have covenant or ministry, and I think he's using those interchangeably. And covenant and ministry aren't really words we use in our daily lives or in our cultural vocabulary, um, but we do use it in some sense instances, um, particularly uh, perhaps related to marriage. If you went to Trevor and Sonia's wedding, you may have heard Jordan call their marriage a covenant. They're making a covenant together. And really when the Bible talks about covenant, he's talking about a committed partnership. And the big one is when God makes a committed partnership, expresses his committed partnership to people. And it's a big deal. Uh, and we have similar words that are close or adjacent, like partnership or contract or things like that, but they don't really describe all, all it, both of those don't really describe in the fullness of what covenant, in, covenant or ministry is. Uh, so you, people can make covenants, but really what we're going to be talking about this morning is when God makes a covenant with people, a committed partnership to people expressed through his promises. I think Paul uh, kind of switches back and forth between ministry and covenant here, um, but they are the same thing. Uh, it helps me to think of ministry as a governing body or a contract that administers good things for the well-being of people. 
So I think of it in terms of like how the British talk about their departments of government. They do, we would say the Department of Health. Uh, they say the Ministry of Health or the Ministry of Defense. Um, I think um, Harry Potter also does the Ministry of Magic, and that's because J.K. Rowling is British. And so the, something, a governing body that administers good things for the well-being of people. And that's what God does in his covenant. He wants to administer good things uh, for the well-being of his people. So that's why covenant and ministry, I think, are very similar and why Paul uses them interchangeably here. But the, there's no coincidence that these are both occurring together in this passage because uh, they, they are interpreted with each other. So uh, even though we use the word glory to describe other things in the Bible, um, it describes glory as the wonder of God's covenant relationship, his committed partnership with people being actively present in a way that profoundly impacts all of creation. That is weighty. That's heavy. And it's it's weighty because God has committed to partnering with people. That, that is glory. That's not some sunset. That is glorious. And so when Paul talks about how the old covenant was glorious, uh, but then also calls it a ministry of death, those two don't really go together in my mind. What is he talking about? What makes it glorious? And then he also references this story that where the Israelites uh, look, couldn't look at the face of Moses because of its glory, because of the covenant's glory. What is that story about? Um, so that story is just a, a reference to uh, Exodus 34. We'll, um, we'll just kind of recap that real quick for some background. Um, but this story is happening in a larger story of where God has just rescued all of the Israelites and brought them out of slavery, out of Egypt, to Mount Sinai, where he's going to give them his teaching and instruction and make them his people and make this covenant, this committed relationship with them. And it is going to be glorious. And when he does this, uh, it says Moses' face shone or was radiant or glowed. And uh, this is kind of in the larger story. This is actually the second time Moses is getting God's teaching. Remember, uh, they came out. God was going to give them the teaching. He said, come up to the mountain. I will, I will speak it to you. And that absolutely freaked them out. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. We don't want to get anywhere close to that. Uh, and so he said, fine, I'll give it to you through Moses. And so Moses went up the mountain to get God's teaching. And when he came down with the tablets of stone uh, that God had written it on, they, the Israelites had built the golden calf and were worshiping the golden calf. And Moses threw the tablets down metaphorically and symbolically saying, you've already broke it. There's no need for you to have this. You've broken it already. And so he had to go back up the mountain and get the teaching again from God. And so now he's coming down a second time with tablets of stone. And this is where that story picks up. Picks up. He says in Exodus 34, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. It's kind of a characteristic of them. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. After all, the Israelites came near to him, and he gave them the commandments of the Lord he had given him on Mount Sinai. 
When Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he had come out again to the Israelites and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw his face was radiant. And then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord again. So this is the story uh, Paul is referencing that when God expresses, expressed his covenant to Moses, it was so glorious that it was reflected in Moses' face, and his face was radiant. His face would glow. So what would make the Old Covenant, what we now call the Old Covenant, what would make the covenant so glorious that it would affect Moses in that way? Uh, the Old Covenant is described in Exodus 19 through 34, so the whole way leading up to this story. Uh, it's fascinating. I encourage you to read it. Um, but the Old Covenant was God's expression and commitment to partnering with people through promises. And he promised them amazing, good things. He promised them land uh, to build them an, into a nation through their families. He promised to live among them, to put his presence among them, and to invite them into relationship with him. He promised them a sense of belonging, that they could belong to him and him to them and them to each other. Uh, that's huge. That's what people look for, spend their whole lives looking for, is a sense of belonging, and God offered that to them. Uh, he offered them a regal or priestly purpose. He gave them the job of telling the nations who he was and what he was about and how they could join the family. Uh, that that's a huge job. That's a huge privilege. And he gave it to them. He entrusted it to them. And then he gave them direction on how to live, detailed instruction on how to figure out every aspect of life you can imagine. Uh, I, Sam and I often joke when we're in a situation uh, that seems really complicated or I don't know what to do, I'm, I'm often tempted to say, well, if there wasn't a college class on that, or there's, I wish there was a book written about that, but God literally gave them a whole book on how to deal with complicated, uh, confusing life situations. He gave them express, uh, express uh, ways to how to navigate life. That is amazing. That's incredible. That is glorious. And simply hearing those things from God made Moses' face glow. Those are wonderful and glorious things. The weight of God's presence is literally in them. And all the Israelites had to do to keep up their side of the partnership was to enjoy the things God gave them and to follow his way of living. Uh, that's very doable. That obedience was not impossible, God said. God said they could do that. He said in Deuteronomy 30, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who's going to ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who's going to cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. No. The word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. So God says, you are, cap you are able to hold up your end of the partnership. This is doable. Uh, and in that passage, he also says, I've given you the choice. You can choose. I've put before you life and death. And if you live my way of living, it leads to these amazing, great things. And if you choose not to, it'll lead to death. It'll kill you in the end. And so he presented these promises to Israel 
And uh, unfortunately, they didn't want those things from God, and they didn't want to obey him, revealing that God's covenant, uh, this old covenant, uh, was not effective at changing their desire, that it was doable, uh, but they didn't want to do it. It had glorious purpose and potential, but it didn't change them to want to live up to that. Um, it didn't change them uh, to restore them back to the image of God that he intended them to be, much less change them into a people who could evangelize the world and sh tell the world who God, who God is and who he wants them to be. And so despite its glorious purpose and potential, it be ended up being a source of condemnation and judgment um, because in its light and goodness, uh, their selfishness and failure couldn't hide. It couldn't be ignored. And the more they failed, the more guidelines and teachings God would give them, much like a parent would, showing, no, this is the way to live. Uh, but the, all the more they rebelled and all the more they broke them, broke the partnership uh, until finally, in effect, they, they killed it. They killed themselves and they brought death on themselves. And so even though the promise of God partnering with people was amazing and weighty and glorious because the people so resisted him, because at the mountain when God invited them up, they said, oh, no, we can't do that. And because when Moses came down from the mountain to teach them, they said, oh, no, put a veil over that. We can't see that. That move, that constant move, uh, caused them to, uh, to reject God over and over and even though it was glorious, because they resisted him, they only got fading glimpses of his glory on Moses' face. These were radiant reflections of God's presence, which scared them, and they caused him to draw back from him, causing Moses to even hide the last glimmers of God's glory from them, finally leaving them in the dark with cold, rigid, and legal tablets of stone. But thankfully, that wasn't God's endgame. Paul says this was temporary, this was transitory, this was to hold us until uh, we got to what God had planned next. And so God wasn't willing to leave it at that and committed to keeping up his end of the partnership, which Jordan got into uh, last week in Jeremiah 31 and Exodus, um, Ezekiel 36. And he describes, I'm going to do a new covenant. I'm going to make a new covenant with you. I'm going to commit to partner with people through promises. And I'm not going to write it on tablets of stone. I'm going to write it on their hearts. I'm going to change their hearts, change them from the inside out. I'm going to free their desires to love and obey me. I'm going to give them the want to, to do it. And he's going to put his glory or his spirit inside of them forever. And that will give them life rather than heaping judgment and death on them. That will be life-giving. That will give them joy and peace and all the fruit of the spirit, the, the result of the spirit being in their lives. And that is so much more glorious. Uh, it brings righteousness and life where the old covenant did not do that because they didn't want it, but now he changes them to want it. Uh, it's internal. The weight of God's presence is literally in us, and it's forever rather than coming and fading and coming and fading. That is glorious. Uh, the new covenant uh, gives us hope because in it, the spirit, through it, the Spirit transforms us into the image of himself. Uh, and so uh, this, the second uh, 
the second paragraph, Paul really gets into what do, why does the new covenant matter? What is it, how does it change our lives? It says the new covenant gives us hope because through it the Spirit transforms us into the image of God. So what do we do with it? And uh, let's, let's just read through that real quick. It says, Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in this, in this second paragraph, Paul is showing them that the old covenant pointed to our need for Jesus the whole time. It was never the end game. God wanted to show them that, yes, it was doable, but you didn't want to do it. And now I'm going to make it possible so you can want to do it. Uh, they mi- and he says the Jews missed the whole point that Jesus is the glory of God. Uh, we saw in John 1.14 that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only a son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the glory of God in a body, and we can look to him of what God looks like. In the second paragraph, it's kind of sad because Paul says that um, the Israelites missed the point, that the constant move uh, to distance themselves from God and hold God at arm's length um, took that veil from Moses' face and put it over their hearts. And how tragic, uh, blinded their eyes, blinded their hearts from seeing the whole point all along was Jesus. But the new covenant uh, allows God to remove that veil and replace it with his spirit. It allows us to turn to Jesus, who shows us reality from God's point of view and gives us freedom uh, from our addictions to ourselves. Uh, And anyone can turn to God, Paul says, and have that veil removed. And verse 16, he says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So through the Holy Spirit maturing us in us, we can reflect the glory of God. Uh, We can reflect the glory of God not like Moses did temporarily, but like Jesus did permanently. Uh, When he says he's transforming us into the image of God, that gets back to right at the beginning from Genesis 1, when he says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And he breaks out into a song. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This sounds like the covenant. He gives them blessing and says, Enjoy the good world I've given you. Rule over it. That's a regal regal role that he's entrusted uh, people with. And people said, No thanks. I'll I'll decide what I want and what is best. 
And so he's saying, I'm going to transform you back into what I originally intended. I'm going to transform you so that you actually do reflect who I am to the world and you can see my goodness in each other. So as I think through these things of how the new covenant is glorious, that's awesome. But uh, what do we do with that? What, what, what does it matter? Uh, what does it matter that we look like the image of God, uh, that we reflect his image, not like Moses, but like Jesus? Um, in this whole passage, Paul has been saying that the new covenant is more glorious than the old covenant and be- gives us hope because through it, the spirit transforms us into the image of God. And he says that matters because of hope. Uh, We have hope because of the new covenant. I think he's saying we have hope that righteousness is possible, whereas before we just had no hope of that. Uh, Righteousness is possible and transformation is happening in us because his spirit is in us. And so that makes us bold uh, in our partnership with God. So I think, as I think through these truths of what is Paul um, hoping we hold on to and we hang on to, uh, we say that God is committed to people and committed to working out his master plan in our world. And that gives me hope that God has not given up on our world or on me. It makes us bold. I see that God loves us and wants, us to have, wants to have a relationship with us so that he can transform us to be like him. Whew, that gives me hope. That makes me bold because he loves us and wants a relationship with us to transform us. With that goes along that maturity and change are possible through the Spirit. That gives me hope that it is possible through the Spirit and that we have freedom to love and obey God things, and freedom from the things that prevented us from loving and obeying him. Change is possible through the Spirit. And then lastly, that God's presence, his glory through his spirit in us will always be with us and he will never leave us. It gives us hope that makes us bold. So as I think of how to respond to those truths as I hang on to them and navigate life with those truths, uh, and I think of how God is committed to people and working out his master plan in our world, I think we can praise God that he hasn't given up on us and thank him uh, for not giving up on our world and not giving up on us. Uh, We don't have to give up or give in to despair when we see evil uh, in the world or encounter evil in the world because we can have hope that God really is working against evil and injustice uh, to bring heaven's reality down to earth through Jesus' kingdom, through the Spirit. That gives me hope. I think we can dream about what Jesus' kingdom is going to be like, how it's going to be a kingdom that is just and good. Uh, When I see a world of injustice or people I love experience evil and injustice, I can look ahead to what the Bible describes as God's kingdom and hold on and have hope because one day Jesus is going to set all things right and his master plan is going to be complete and it's going to be such a relief. And that gives me hope. When I think of responding to how God loves us and wants us to have a relationship with us so he can transform us, uh, I think we can respond to his invitation of relationship. Uh, and if we haven't responded to his invitation to be in relationship with him uh, by confessing our sins and saying, yes, I want to have a partnership with God, um, then that would be the first and most appropriate step of responding. Uh, 
Uh, when we have done that, we, I think we can celebrate the transformation and change we see the Spirit doing in each other. Uh, that, that's miraculous. I was um, thinking back to when Sule shared with his brother of the transformation the Holy Spirit did in their relationship. Um, I was talking with uh, one of our missionaries, Debbie Dodd, about that and describing, oh my gosh, you would never believe what happened in our church today. And she responded by saying, I'm so glad you got to experience a real life miracle today. When the Holy Spirit changes us, it's miraculous. It's glorious. That's the evidence of God's spirit here with us. And we can celebrate that. I think that's fantastic. It's a great way to encourage each other that the Holy Spirit really is at work in us. I think we can lastly also partner with the Holy Spirit and ask the Holy Spirit and our church or your community group, uh, how can I grow in maturity? Uh, How can I partner with the Holy Spirit to grow maturity in me? Uh, And how can I get out of the way so he can transform me into the image of God? Uh, I think Drew mentioned our community group is going to be going through this book to step through a couple areas of maturity uh, that I would like to grow in, (laughs) that I would like to look more like Jesus and reflect uh, the glory of God. And so our community group is going to be going through that. If you want to join us, we would love to have you. Um, catch us later to get a book, and we'll start that together. And then lastly, as we think about how God's presence will always be with us through his spirit, and he will never leave us, we can respond by trusting him in situations that are dark and uncertain and scary and confusing. Uh, My family had a, um, we called it a family password growing up. Uh, I don't actually know why we called it a password or in what situation we would need a password. Yeah, I don't know why we called it a password, but um, it was a saying that was supposed to be the way you would know we were family. Uh, And my parents taught it to us on our hands so that no matter where we were, we would always be able to remember it. And so the password was, God has said, I will never leave you. And so if we got separated in the grocery store and we're scared, we could remember God has said, I will never leave you. Which is a very sweet and reassuring thing for a five-year-old in Walmart that's separated uh, from mom. And oh my gosh, I'm scared. I can remember God has said, I will never leave you. Uh, But fast forward uh, 20 years, I was in Um, I had coordinated with a friend that we were going to tour Paris for the day. Um, And so we were going to take separate trains and arrive uh, at the same time and and then spend the day touring together. Uh, I did not speak French, though, um, and so was kind of relying on my friend to get us where we needed to go. Um, And I didn't really understand where the train station was in relation in the city. Uh, So I was really relying on my friend to get us to all these tourist spots. Um, And so I get there, and it is hustling and bustling, and it is a full, big, uh, loud, busy place. And it was a little overwhelming. The loudspeaker is going all the time in French. There are lots of other languages happening, none of which I understand. Lots of people. And to boot, the family I had stayed with had told me, you need to really be careful. You need to really be on your guard because there are pickpockets and they will just rob you blind. And so you need to really be hypervigilant. And so all these scenarios and uh, pictures are playing out in my, you know, extrapolating and exploding in my mind of, okay, I got to really be on. And it's overwhelming in a stimulating place and uh, it was a little anxiety producing and 
nervous, made me nervous and made me very tense. And so I got there, okay, we're going to do this. And um, my friend didn't show up, and my friend didn't show up, and my friend didn't show up. And it really made me nervous. And it got to the point where it was an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and now I need to, like, make a decision. What am I going to do? Am I just going to wing it and say, I don't know what happened, and go go by myself out into this city, or uh, my other option was I'm just going to hunker down right here and I'm not going to leave and I'm going to wait here until my returning train leaves because then I'll be safe, uh, which is a terrible option as well. And so I was really quite nervous about this and suddenly it came to mind. God has said, I will never leave you. And the Holy Spirit reminded me, I, we're here together. Well, I know where this train station is. I, I know how this city works. I speak French. Uh, we are here together because the Spirit is with me. And so I was able to take a deep breath. Okay, the Spirit is here with me. God is here with me. I can trust him even when I am afraid or don't know what to do or am in the unknown. Okay, I can trust him because he is here with me. And four minutes later, my friend showed up and we were fine. But... It was a real moment of, I should have done that first. I should have remembered, oh yeah, Jesus, the Spirit is with me. I can trust him. And as I think of the scary or unknown uh, or dark situations we're in, uh, either personally or as a community or a country, I think uh, we can trust him because he is with us. Um, has uh, shelter in place made us feel alone or isolated? in your marriage, in your house, in your community, in your family. He will never leave us. He is with us, and we can trust him that he's good. Now, are we afraid of sickness and um, what that means socially of uh, potentially dying alone? He is with us, and we can trust him because he's good and he's with us. Those may be a lot of ways uh, to respond to you. That's kind of how my brain works. But really what it boils down to in the end is how do we want to live in response to the new life the Spirit has given us? How do we want to respond to the new covenant and the glorious new life the Spirit has given us? And in what areas of maturity do we want to grow? Are there things in our life that are just not cutting it? Uh, that we need an outside perspective, either the Spirit or the church, to say, uh, hey, this is not working, so that change can happen and maturity can grow and radiance can beam forth from our lives. We're going to take about 60 seconds or so to just take a minute before we worship to think about these. And I'd encourage you uh, to have a conversation with the Holy Spirit about one or both of these and how to respond to the new life uh, he has given us and the ways he's transforming us into the image of God. And to really use worship as a way to respond about that. Uh, I want to leave you with one final thought. Uh, this gives me great comfort that Jesus has said, I've told you these things, that in me you may have peace. Uh, in the world you will have trouble. Uh, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're going to take a minute uh, to just think about those two questions before we worship. I'm going to pray for us. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for uh, bringing us close into relationship with you. 
uh, giving us your spirit and transforming us, committing to transforming us into the image of your son um, and reflecting that uh, to each other and um, to the world. Thank you for not giving up on us or our world, uh, but promising to bring your master plan to completion. Father, we praise you. Uh, Jesus Spirit, we praise you and the work that you are doing and that you promise to do in our lives. Um, please make us humble and help us um, walk rightly with you uh, in ways that open our eyes to the work you can do in us and through us together as a family. Uh, we praise you and uh, we desire to 